You're listening to the Anomalous Podcast Network. Multiple voices, one phenomenon. guys how's it going welcome back to disclosure team i'm your host Vinny adams thank you to everybody that's here live on youtube um and then thank you also to everybody that may be listening or watching after today on the anomalous podcast network or, or on youtube as well um i'm really looking forward to this conversation so let's jump straight into it oh i will quickly say if anybody does have any questions here in the live chat please pop them in capital letters it enables me to just see them or have more of a chance of seeing them um, I may save them to the end of the interview, depends on whether they fit and slot into the the the, the topic that we're discussing at that at that time. So uh, let's not waste any more time. I'd love to introduce my guest. Uh, please welcome Nick Cook. Nick, how hey, are Vinny. you? How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Uh, I've been looking forward to this uh, since we agreed on it. Me too. Great pleasure. Looking forward to Excellent. it. Excellent. So I guess initially my first question would be, what came first, your interest in aviation or UFOs? Like, where did it all kind of start with things in the sky? Oh, it was definitely aviation. Um, my dad was an engineer and an inventor, unusually. So I grew up in a sort of rather uh, uh, engineering-minded household. And I think one of my earliest memories is just being fascinated by planes, aircraft, space, it was, you know, it was very much a topic of conversation in our house. So it, it was definitely that first. I was a very late um, sort of, uh, I developed a late interest in UFOs. In fact, actually, it was my dad again who sent me a book. It was Tim Good's book, you know, Above Top Secret. Oh, yes. Um, sometime, it was while I was at Jane's, I, I'd never, Jane's Defense Weekly, which is the magazine I worked at for, a, for quite a long time, um, never given them really any thought up until then but um that sort of tweaked my interest in the subject excellent any sightings at all over the years of your own no never never well not not uh, uh a ufo that most people would dis distinguish as a ufo i the closest i ever came to seeing anything really unusual was something that i saw uh, outside area 51 um, back in a long time ago, 19, well, actually 30 years ago, 1992. So um, we can talk about that if you like, but it was yeah. a, uh, a sphere of very bright orange plasma-like light. Um, and uh, it was like, certainly wasn't an aeroplane. Um, so we can uh, we can chat about that. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. But let's take it back. You mentioned Jane's Defence Weekly. So, you know, how did you how did you go from an interest in aviation to actually writing about it for such a, you know, a well-established uh, publication? 
Uh, I, I guess I was lucky, really. I got some lucky breaks. Uh, I left university. I had a degree in Arabic and Islamic studies. So that had nothing to do with what I went on to do. Um, uh, graduated in the early 80s. Um, so, I, I, you know, I was, I, I, I'm one of those people I knew I had to go into something that would really engage me. I just, you know, I couldn't do something unless I was passionately engaged in the subject matter. And as we've already said, I had a had a long-standing interest in aviation. So I thought, well, I, I want to do something to do with aerospace. Um, but I didn't have an engineering degree, so that ruled me out of that. I, maths is not my strong suit. Um, <laughs> and so uh, actually it was my good old dad who said to me again, have you ever thought about writing about the subject? I had never thought that that was a possibility. Uh, so, but at that point I thought, yeah, actually, you know, that's a great idea. I like the idea of that. So I, at that point, I just approached a number of different magazines. In fact, once, you know, half the battle is knowing what you want to do. And then when you know what you want to do, you can target your interest. And I relentlessly targeted a number of publications. And in the end, I got a job with a, uh, a very, uh, it's not well known at all, but it was a trade publication called Interavia. It was based in Geneva, but it had a UK office and they gave me the job. They said, we'll give you a trial. And that was in 1983. Uh, and in 86, Jane's Defence Weekly offered me a job uh, of a reporter. And uh, the following year, I was given the aerospace editor's job. And that was great because it was a real step up. That was quite a, Jane's back in those days certainly was quite an investigative journal. We sort of like to think we um, kicked down a few doors um, and it was a very good, fun, solid uh, journalistic organisation to work for. Excellent, yeah. And, and, and did, uh, did it help you forge relationships with people within the aerospace world and, and even possibly the military world and, you know, how did that sort of benefit you? Well, it, it did, um, because a, a trade journal is not like a newspaper. It is. It has this weird sort of slightly symbiotic relationship with the industry it's reporting on. And I think this is probably the same for any trade publication that, that reports on an industrial sector. Um, so on the one hand, uh, these companies will court you. They will. They want their copy, their, you know, whatever it is that's new on their quotes ra radar screen to go into the publication um, on the other hand it is down to us not to kowtow or pander to them you have to you know give them a fair trial in whatever it is that they do um, so you kind of tread that walk that tightrope really between um, I wouldn't say I ever cozied up to them um, but on the other hand I was respectful of them uh, I was certainly respectful or tried to be of um, the facts. Mm. And as long as you adhered to the facts, I felt that was probably a pretty good guideline for how you should conduct your career. So to begin with, it was a very sort of ordinary kind of beat for me. I just reported on the developments of the day in the aerospace defense world, because Jane's Defense Weekly obviously was covering the military side of things. But after a while, you sort of you tend to develop a set of interests. 
Mm. And the late, certainly the late 80s, um, when did I get the job? Uh, I got the job in 86. I became editor in 87. So by the late 80s, there was a lot of surfacing stuff about black world programs. You know, the F-117 stealth fighter had not yet revealed itself or been revealed. There was emerging talk about a hypersonic replacement of the Blackbird deemed yeah, rumored to be this thing called Aurora. Well, you know, uh, I was in the right place at the right time. We had a, I had a global, I was based in London, but I had a global beat. My expense account back then was unusually generous so I could travel and I could go and talk to people about these and other programs. And, and, and it was always America for me that was the, 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 the good and fascinating place to, uh, to go and really dig these stories up because it, it was the place where the, the real technology was at. So I spent a lot of my time going to the States. Yeah, and now you mentioned Aurora there, and it's still to this day is this mythical idea of this program. But did, did it exist, and, and what did it represent? Some some say it's it's a multitude of craft or planes under the Aurora banner. Others say it's just one craft, or or, or it doesn't exist at all. So, are you able to help us? Uh, you know, get to the bottom of that. Well, I, I don't think we should be deceived by the name for a start. You know, Aurora appeared in the public consciousness because it appeared in a budget, a US budget, a defense, a, a DOD Pentagon budget book in the mid late 1980s. It was a line item, but it was a big line item. It had, there was billions of dollars in that line yeah. item and no one could, there was no clear um, description of what this thing was, but it was called Aurora. Uh, so a colleague of mine, uh, who was working for Jane's at the time, a chap called Bill Sweetman. He was based in the States, very well-known aerospace writer, but he'd made a, a career almost out of writing about these secret programs. And Bill uh, had done an awful lot of digging um, even before that, early 1980s, about emerging stealth technology and hypersonic technology. And it was his view that Aurora was a sort of blanket um, a blanket name for a multitude of different programs. But the one that we all focused on, rightly, was this hypersonic, that which means a plane capable of exceeding Mark V, five times the speed of sound, um, a hypersonic replacement for the SR-71 Blackbird, which uh, retired in 1990, if memory serves. And uh, I... I I believe that something was there. I think it was a what they call an operational uh, deployable prototype. So it wasn't didn't go into mass production, but it didn't need to. The, a handful of them were all that would be required. And that it filled a gap between the retirement of the SR-71 and the emergence of a new generation of spy satellites, digital spy satellites, that were able to provide real-time um, surveillance of uh, the Soviet Union, Russia, and other places of interest. So for a narrow window of time, maybe two or three years, this thing was out there. And I got a, as near an admission as I'll probably ever get from an official when on uh, his very last day in office, uh, the head of research and development for the US Air Force, a guy called uh, Lieutenant General George Mulner, um, 
granted me an interview request. And we were, uh, uh, the, the topic of conversation was black world aerospace programs, which would have been or should have been under his purview. And he came as close, I think, as anyone has to saying, yeah, we sort of probably developed, or we could have developed something. I mean, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but, um, you know, it, it, there was this sort of intermediate gap between what was retired and these new, these, this new generation of spy satellites. So I, I took that as a, as a yes. Excellent. You see, I've been looking recently into the Calvin case from 1990, which, uh, you know, certain people in the uh, UFO community say that it's apparently the, the, the clearest UFO photo that's ever existed. Uh, and then there's a lot of other people that believe it to be a, a secret black project. Um, so I just wondered what your thoughts were on that case. Uh, I'm by no means an expert in it. I mean, it, I think it, uh, it, it did not come across my desk when I was at James. But I've seen pictures of it, obviously. Um, and I know that the Condine report has given it a certain uh, level of uh, respectability, if you can call it that. Yeah. Um, I've, I've looked at the pictures. Um, it, the craft itself is very reminiscent of a, uh, an artist concept that was run in Aviation Week um, in, uh, I think it was the late 80s. This thing looked like a diamond um, and was very, uh, was reported to be by Aviation Week very high flying and very fast. So the bit that perplexes me and makes me doubt what I see in the Calvine case is that this thing looks identical to this design that was uh, flammed up in Aviation Week, but yet is flying at very low altitude, very slowly, clearly, because it's in the company of a Harrier GR5 or a GR7. Uh, and uh, to my mind, unless it's powered by something truly exotic, it should f be falling out of the sky. So, I, you know, it, for me, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm always ready to be persuaded otherwise. Um, but it looks a bit suspect to me. That's, I appreciate the answer. But I mean, it's 32 years ago. I mean, if it was, you know, something secretive, like a black project, is, there, is that a normal amount of time or is it sounds a long time for things to remain, you know, in the dark? Is that normal? Uh, yeah, well, it, increasingly, I think it will be the case. I mean, the last there was a round of Black World Aerospace revelations um, in the in the in the late 80s and the early 90s. Um, the F-117 stealth fighter, the B-2, well, B-2 was kind of semi-black it was more dark gray than black um but the f-117 stealth fighter came out of the shadows in 1988 uh and then there were some various other programs were revealed in the 1990s since then there's been nothing and mm. i think there's a very good reason for that because a lot of officials in the 1980s put their political reputations on the line when they denied absolutely that aircraft and projects like the stealth fighter existed and then they were proven to exist and these official officials wriggled out of it by saying well you didn't ask me the right question you were asking me about a stealth fighter well that's not a stealth fighter it's actually an attack aircraft and it wasn't called the f-19 it's called the f-117 so we didn't lie um 
And, you know, there it is. Well, you know, after that, the reporter community smartened up and they asked them uh, questions that gave these people no room for wriggle room. But as you know, Vinny, um, under special access program rules and waived SAPs, you can lie till the cows come home in order to protect the secret. So a bunch of a bunch of other officials since then have gone on record as saying, no, there's nothing. Aurora doesn't exist. Nothing like it exists. And so they are buried and kept buried for a very long time to protect those officials. And that's why I don't think you're going to see too much in the way of revelation about yeah, buried black programs um, until they absolutely have to. I mean, it, it will be they'll be dragged kicking and screaming uh, metaphorically into the light for that very reason, because people are embarrassed. You know, it, it, they threaten to embarrass political careers, whether they are current or retired. Uh, now let's move on to your book, The Hunt for Zero Point, which I think was published first in 2001. Um, and a lot of focus was on the classified world of anti-gravity technology with focus on Igor Witkowski's claims that the Nazis developed some sort of UFO-like device. So, so what made you decide to go down that route with this book and what did you discover during the process? Well, it was, I mean, Igor Witkowski and, and some of the German stuff um, did get some attention when the book came out and, and to a degree still does. But that's not why I set out to write the book. Um, in fact, actually in the book itself, I say that the Nazi stuff is a really annoying distraction, but I can't, <laughs> I can't ignore it because it keeps on popping up. So I yeah. have to address it. And that was true. It, it was an annoying distraction. The real thing that I wanted to write about was it stemmed from um, uh, an article that came across my desk saying that uh, the US aerospace industry had looked at and had started to develop anti-gravity technology in the late 1950s. Um, but by the 1960s, early 1960s, there was no reference anymore to this very public discussion in the late 1950s by very reputable aerospace companies that some of which were still and still are household names, you know, Lockheed, um, Boeing, I think was in there, Convair, you know, well-known, well-known names. So I think, you know, to begin with, I think, God, this is really uh, hokey and I'm sure there's nothing in it. But I made a few calls and I called a few people I knew in the Lockheeds and the Boeings. And I said, look, <laughs> this is sort of crazy, uh, you know, it's a slow month. I'm just running a few checks. But this article came across my desk. It's a contemporary article from 1956. Could you could you check it out for me? You know, and I, I, I had sources and contacts in. Actually, it was a very low level uh, approach I made through the mostly through the public affairs organizations of these companies. And it wasn't until one of them came back to me and said, actually, we'd really rather you didn't dig into this. Wow. That I thought, well, okay, um, uh, now if I wasn't before, but now I am, thanks very much. And, and actually from then on, that's the theme of the book was, I wanna go on a, I'm gonna go on a journey to find out uh, what I can find out about what I deem to be the most secret thing I could conceive of in the 
aerospace and defense world. And I'm doing that because through this job at Jane's Defense Weekly, which was like, a, it was like my passport into the world of the deeply respectable world of aerospace and defense. There were very few, I don't think there were any doors that were closed to me. I could interview, um, you know, uh, senior members of the Pentagon. I could interview senior members of the UK MOD. I could interview government ministers. So why don't I just use this opportunity? Because I don't think I'm going to be in the job forever. Um, to just ask questions about this really taboo. This is 25 years ago. So this subject where we're all talking about now, you couldn't breathe this in polite company 25 years ago for fear of being, you know, uh, carted off. So uh, so I kept these questions very low key, but I, I, I've sort of jotted it all down. And I just said to myself, however long it takes, um, Let's see where it goes. I wasn't intending to write a book even, but after about seven or eight years, I thought, God, actually, this is quite interesting, this journey. It's taken me into some very interesting areas. It's taken me into places, parts of NASA I didn't know existed, parts of, you know, the skunk works I didn't know about. Um, and I just wrote it up. And, and along the way, there was this, as I said, this rather annoying, persistent sort of Nazi legend that kept on popping up. So I thought, well, I've got to go and deal with that as well. And but, that, but it was interesting because it, it it opened up the world of an individual called SS General Hans Kammler, who was in charge of all Nazi Germany's secret research programs at the end of the war. And at the time I was looking into Kammler's career, which was exotic, weird, unpleasant and uh, extraordinary. Um there were many conflicting accounts of his death and a bit like those, um, you know, conflicting accounts of, of anti-gravity stories in the late 1950s, where you've got those, where you've got that level of sort of pushback, you think, well, actually there's something here. So what did happen to Hans Kammler? Where did he go? Did he do a deal with the Americans? Did he do a deal with the Russians? So it led me down that rabbit hole and Along the way, I, I, I met Igor Witkowski and came across the story of the Nazi bell and, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da. So what, what is Die Glocke, in your opinion? Oh, in my we opinion. Hear that We hear that it's like a UFO and then, the, oh, you know, no, they, got, they it, fly it down to Antarctica and all this yeah, kind of stuff. It's taken on a life of its own. I mean, it's amazing. That story has really <laughs> burgeoned um, and... and you know, uh, no, for me, in the hunt for zero point, I say, look, um, this place where the bell, uh, and I think there was something there, there was a program, there was something um, happening in this location, which was in southern Poland, near uh, the, the city of Breslau, um, as it was in German days. Uh, and uh, but the, the site itself, which was an SS-run um, secret weapons site, uh, in the middle of it is this thing that people have called the Henge. You know, I think I may have referred to it such in the hunt for zero point. But I say, you know, this construction looks awfully like the base of a of a, of a cooling tower. It, it's not doesn't look like an anti gravity. Well, it could be an anti gravity test rig, I suppose. And that's what Igor Vitkovsky conjectured it was. I said, but it, given this place is a very secret site, it unquestionably has links to 
Germany's secret nuclear program at the end of the Second World War. You know, it is either something truly exotic along Igor's lines, or it is, I think, more likely to be part of Germany's nuclear program, you know, to do with uh, um, the separation of, of nuclear isotopes for a weapons program. The as I said, that henge thing looks like the base of a cooling tower. You get cooling towers all over nuclear sites. And, you know, the jury was kind of slightly out when I wrote the book 20 years ago. I'm absolutely convinced it was to do with their nuclear program today. I don't think it has anything, sadly, nothing to do with uh, uh, an, an anti-gravity program. I, I am in, in total agreement with you on there. You know, I, I have these conversations with a lot of different friends and colleagues and especially uh, Graham Rendell, who wrote the recent Foo Fighters book. And he, he tackles this, the, the Germany aspect of things in that in, in quite de in a lot of depth. And there's, yeah. just, there's just nothing there. There's just no evidence. It's, it, there's hearsay and stories. And yeah, it, it's very it's difficult. Intriguing to... From that point of view, because there is a lot of sort of circumstantial evidence, you know, there are. Germans who've come out of the woodwork who said, I worked on a source of program during the Second World War. And, but there is absolutely no, well, as you've just said, Vinny, there's no smoking gun, which is, it's really, it's strange. But, you know, I, I try to follow evidence and see where that evidence takes me. And, and uh, as I said in the hunt, it, it took me everywhere and nowhere when I was doing the, um, the investigation, but nothing that led to a German disc program an anti-gravity program, anything like that. Yeah. Uh, so during your time looking more into the, the UFO side of things, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on the, the Roswell incident. You know, do you believe that it could well be an object of non-human origin or do you lean more towards the sort of prosaic project mogul, you know, some kind of balloon? I definitely don't le lean towards a, a prosaic project mogul type explanation. Okay. I remember I was at uh, Jane's Defense Weekly when the Air Force produced its, uh, I think it was called it something really kind of uh, presumptuous, like, you know, the final report on Roswell. Um, and I think, when was that? That was probably early 90s, maybe. Um, and uh, it was clear they were covering something up. I mean, it was that I didn't know what they were covering up, but it was very clear they were covering something up. And of course, again, you know, as we've touched on a number of times already in just a few, you know, 20 minutes or so, um, where you get that level of disagreement, contradiction, uh, pushback from officialdom, even though officialdom itself might not know what's going on, there's something there, you know, that that denotes there is something to look at. Um, I, I never spent any time investigating Roswell because hundreds or dozens, if not hundreds of people have. And, you know, I was always interested to read what they came up with. I, I, I Unquestionably, something very strange happened, something very secret happened. Um, a crash disc, perhaps. I mean, I incline more towards that than I, than I do in a, a prosaic explanation, certainly. Um, and there is, I, I, you know, firmly believe, again, you know, from, from my own journalistic career that where there's smoke, there's often fire or there is usually there is all there is always fire. Um, and in Roswell's case, I've no doubt that something very, very unusual and secret happened. 
Um, I just don't know what that thing, what that, what that instance was. Yeah, no, of course. <clears throat> now we often hear the term crash retrieval, especially more recently banded about when it comes to UFOs. But do you believe that possibly the US government or a private entity such as your Lockheed, your Skunk Works and that, they could have UFO wreckage in their possession? I didn't until recently. Um, I, uh, I, I just felt that, again, I've always tried to follow things that I can pin down. Sure. And I like to think that most of the things, almost everything, I think, in the Hunt for Zero Point was sort of pinnable data, pinnable evidence. And where it's not, I, you know, I try to say it's not, you know, I, or I don't know. Um, so in, uh, in the case of crash retrievals, again, I, I've never investigated them. I've never looked. But, you know, doing what I do, people have... Again, they, you know, they've come out of the shadows and they've said people who should know or have spoken to people who should know. And they have said, we think that there is a pretty strong case for saying that they have crashed to Earth. Um, again, whose they are, we don't know. But I, 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 I don't uh, align to the view that, again, that there's a sort of prosaic explanation. Um, you know, some have conjectured that you know, top secret, a top secret Soviet craft crashed in the New Mexico desert in 1947. That is just impossible, you know, given the state of the technology of the day. So if it wasn't, you know, what the Pentagon likes to call adversary tech at the moment, um, whose was it? Um, I, again, I think the, 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 what is, it, what, is, what is interesting is what has flipped in the last five years um, since the New York Times' uh, groundbreaking story on uh, the, 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 the US Navy's um, uh, UFO sightings and the revelations about the ATIP program within the Pentagon tasked with looking at UFOs. You know, actually, since then, everything has changed. Um, what was taboo is now no longer taboo what was what couldn't be discussed in polite company is now discussed in congress and in unclassified versions of reports to congress um the 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 the, the, the more tenuous position i think these days is the debunkers position you know, it just doesn't look credible anymore it just sounds ridiculous in fact because the the weight of evidence says no there is something um, exotic in our airspace and it whilst we don't know what it is yet it defies all of those logical rational explanations that um, debunkers like to say you know is is the more likely or, or offers the more likely explanation you know birds balloons um, uh, swamp gas and adversary tech you know some of it is that stuff, but, you know, another thing I like to say is um, it's very easy to debunk one point of evidence, a single data point. But actually what you have to do uh, is, if you want to be credible, is you need to debunk the whole lot. And there's just too much evidence these days that's out there to say that this is uh, a phenomenon that is prosaic, 
dull and you know we shouldn't be paying attention to it's quite the reverse of those things as congress is now telling us you know con- well congressional uh, uh uh panelists who grill defense officials are telling us um those old tropes are no longer acceptable you've got to you've got to do better than that yeah indeed i'd love to get your take on the a lot of the cases that we've heard in the last few years are, are relating to and I hate the word when it's associated, but drones and these objects that are hovering over these uh, Navy fleets for, for really long periods of time, more than any kind of commercial drone could possibly do. But, you know, with the history of UAVs, um, you know, like the RQ-180, which is not really a drone, same with the X-47B, these unmanned vehicles, could these be like a next generation unmanned aerial platform that they're testing? Or, or do you still lean towards it being more more unexplained than that? Well, I, I, I guess I fall back on the, the the same arguments that were put forward, you know, in the early days. Well, no, in, in, in before these, you know, we were talking earlier about these black world stealth programs. Um, and, you know, there would be sightings of something in the skies, you know, over the desert southwest of America. Um, and... People would conjecture, you know, is it a stealth uh, platform that's being tested that's secret or is it something else? Well, yeah, quite often these things were sighted over cities, you know, the Phoenix Lights or, mm. you know, some other quite dense population center. Quite often people would report them over Las Vegas, for example. It is insanity to test a top secret aerospace vehicle over a city. Um it, it, it would be insanity as well to test a top secret drone um, against your own side. Uh, I, I suppose, you know, there, there's probably a smidge of a possibility you might want to do that to get some kind of reaction or test the reaction time of your, you know, of kind of friendly adversary if you're the Air Force and you're putting this thing up against the Navy, but it's extremely unlikely in my view. And it's unlikely to vanishing um, in my view that you would, for example, fly a top secret drone over a nuclear installation. Mm. Who's going to do that? I mean, that's a, it's going to risks being shot down um, or disabled in some way. And then the tech is exposed. Um, So, Again, you know, whilst some of these instances may point to drone technology, again, if you look at the body of the evidence, the, all of it, what you're getting back from that is, you know, a massive um, question mark. It, it, it's, in fact, more than that, it's everything I know from a career in aerospace technology investigation and evaluation does not stack up against what people are reporting so therefore i have to think again um prosaic explanations don't cut it and you know thank god for um the new york times again and its article it's it's december 2017 article which really enabled everyone to talk about this stuff um in in sort of you know open source uh company uh uh it, it's very liberating and it needs to be because you know 
if it's if commentators are having difficulty, think what it's like for a, a pilot, you know, yeah. a military pilot who comes up against one of these things who just can't talk about it because it's taboo. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I recently had a conversation, an interview with David Marlow on Black Triangles, uh, and he brought up the the TR3B, which is it's kind of the bane of my life. I forever hear that phrase banded about when, when anything triangular is talked about in, in ufology. Um, but, it, you know, he mentioned that it all comes down to the word of one man, Edgar Fouché. Did did that name or phrase TR3B ever come across? You know, did you ever come across it in the your work over the years within, you know, aerospace or, or military conversations? Yeah, it, it did. Um, uh, but in a wholly different context. Okay. Um, the very first time I heard it, it was uh, a, 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 a designation that was pinned on a putative, if I recall rightly, re reconnaissance um sort of sibling of the f-117 that there was that and i think again it might have been aviation week or or um or a, a very diligent investigator down in texas called steve douglas it might have been him who had photographed uh a an aerospace platform looking very stealthy that but was clearly very conventional i mean it was just flying very conventionally um that he or someone like him dubbed the TR3B. Um, since then, a bit like Aurora, I feel it's very, for me, it's been very unwise to get hung up on titles because they, they take on a life of their own yeah. and they come to describe, um, in, in the end, anything you want it to describe, you know, so... If you're an anti-gravity proponent, oh, it's a TR-3B, and it was built by humans. Um, if you're a stealth aircraft proponent, oh, it's a stealthy aircraft platform called the TR-3B. Um, so I, I tend to avoid those, the, 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 the designations themselves. Um, when it comes to exotic technology, propulsion technology for terrestrially designed aircraft again I'm, I'm i'm back where i was at the end of the hunt for zero point and i don't want to you know if anyone's still out there tempted to read it i don't want to uh throw in too many spoilers but you know i do say at the end of the hunt um which is which is this more than anything else it's it's my journey through a, a sort of a dark and unfamiliar landscape, which is the world of classified aerospace development insofar as I was able to navigate it. And at the end of the journey, I go, there, there's no smoking gun. You know, I wish there were. I wish I could say I found the anti-gravity program that's buried 10 levels below the Lockheed Skunk Works. But I didn't. <laughs> and I think there's some very powerful, and again, it's detailed in the book, very powerful circumstantial evidence to show that a program could exist but did i find it no found lots of other stuff but <laughs> <laughs> now just sticking with anti-gravity um one name that i keep coming across and there's very little like, information i can find is ning lee is there anything you can tell us about her work because it all just seems very mysterious because it sounds like she was at the forefront of you know anti-gravity studies at least yeah i, I met ning lee um wow. So uh, 
let's think. Uh, I think she just made, yeah, she's in the hunt for zero point. Um, but she was very, uh, very white world then that she was working at the uh, University of Alabama in Huntsville, I think. Um, close to obviously Huntsville is a center of rocket technology. Um, and I, I didn't meet her when she was working for the university or for NASA, which she then went on to do. But she was doing some quite interesting experimentation in rapidly rotating superconductors and noticing, as did a number of other experimenters, that there were some anomalies associated with these devices, which appeared to show a reduction in gravitational pull uh, force in the, uh, the column of air um, or the, the volume of, of air above the rotating superconductor. Um, and that, uh, that was of the, on the order of sort of three to 5%, which, you right. know, actually when you think about it, is quite a noticeable weight drop. Um, lots of people tried to replicate these experiments that, that, that uh, there was a guy in Russia called Yevgeny Podkletnov who had done similar experiments. No one could replicate them. And that was the issue. You know, if you can't, if you can't replicate someone else's experiment in a laboratory, it doesn't exist, you know, according to science. Anyway, Ning Li was amongst that generation. We're talking mid-1990s. Mm. Um, she then got a, uh, uh, I think in 2001 or two, she got a contract from the um, DOD uh, Redstone Arsenal in Alabama um for uh it was uh, about a half a million dollars i think and no one she didn't say what it was for but by that stage people were beginning to get very interested in something called an impulse gravity wave generator this was not the weight reduction thing that you saw above the superconductor what podkletnov and others were saying was if you shot a jolt of a very powerful jolt of electricity through that um, distorted gravitational field, you would get an anti-gravitational jolt, uh, right. a beam, uh, a sort of pulse of anti-gravitational force, which could be used as a weapon. Uh, and it, it had, I mean, Podkletnov, I interviewed Podkletnov as well. And he was talking about experiments he'd done in Russia, which was knocking stuff over at a distance of about a kilometer you scale that up and you get an anti-satellite weapon. You can knock a satellite out of its orbit. So, you know, conjecture. Was that why the Redstone Arsenal gave Ning Li a half a million dollar uh, contract was to investigate this technology as an anti-satellite weapon? Um, because that was sort of what they, what Redstone Arsenal would be charged with. Um, she, I, I met her in 2003 at a conference called it's, it's achieved some notoriety since called the i think it was called the mitre uh corporation gravity high frequency gravity wave conference in mclean virginia spooksville just outside washington and ningley was there she in fact she chaired the conference and i interviewed her and i asked her about her work and she said my work is very real um i'm on the verge of a breakthrough and I'm going to do it for all mankind. And then she disappeared. <laughs> yep. So what happened to her? No idea. But 
well, I, well, of course, we know what happened to her. Sadly, in the end, I think she, uh, she, 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 she next cropped up last year uh, in a obituary notice in Huntsville newspaper saying that she died. So, but what happened in the intervening twenty years? Almost no one really knows. Yeah, there's a lot of theories. I always hear people say, "Oh, she was ordered back to China or something," and and you know kept under, under lock and key or her work was suppressed and I mean there's just no evidence for that so of course it's it, it remains a mystery but no I appreciate you you, you discussing her because like I said I've really struggled to find much information on her so yeah that's really interesting there's there isn't much <laughs> no yeah there you go <laughs> now let's jump completely into a different area this is the the consciousness studies so last year you entered the Bix essay contest ran by Robert yeah. Bigelow, with your paper, what is the best available evidence for the survival of human consciousness after permanent bodily death? So can you give us a bit of a, a mini breakdown of what the article entails and your theories? Yeah. Um, so just a, a bit of background um, to that. I, I've become in, interested in consciousness um, because uh, my wife had an, an unusual experience when her mother died, which was some of the attributes that near-death experiences report, which is a sense of being transported into a, a place that, you know, where seemingly sort of time, time stops. There's this great sense of connection. You know things, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a very weird sort of transcendent experience. Um, we have been married a long time. She doesn't make things up. When she told me this, and it happened at the precise moment her mum died, um, uh, my curiosity was piqued. Obviously, you know, I, I and and I sort of wouldn't let it go because I wanted to know what this thing was. And you know, I did a bit of digging and what that just did a bit of googling, and it told me there was this thing called you know a shared death experience, such as the one I've described, very like an NDE, a near death experience. Um, I, I sort of did a bit of digging and became intrigued enough that, about it actually to write a, uh, a book about it, but not a nonfiction book. I wrote a novel called, a thriller called The Grid. Mm. And the whole subject of consciousness formed the backdrop to The Grid. Um, when I stopped writing The Grid, I was still very interested in the subject of consciousness. You know, what is it that makes, that gives us our sense of self? What is it that gives us perceptual capabilities you know how are we able to map our reality how are we able to navigate our reality you know these are questions that don't have answers that yet they're huge science doesn't have an answer to this so um i think i got a really lucky break i got a grant a research grant that allowed me to research where i'd left off in the consciousness field and i was able to go off and do this for about a year and a half dedicate myself to the study of consciousness and then weirdly um that uh grant funding ended and i thought well that, well that was fun but what do i do with this research and then within a month or two uh robert bigelow you know known for his work in the ufo field and bass you know uh, bigelow aerospace advanced space studies and all the rest of it he popped up with this competition he launched a competition there was uh, one point, well, at the time, I think there was a million dollars or one and a half million dollars attached to it. It grew in the end to be a $1.8 million prize fund. And 
I, I suddenly realized that, you know, the question that you read out, Vinny, about the survival of consciousness uh, after permanent bodily death, I thought, crikey, I've, I've actually investigated. I mean, I've researched this. That is part of what I'd researched for this in this consciousness study. So I thought, oh, well, um, I'll, I'll, have a, I'll have a crack at it. And I didn't really didn't expect to get anywhere at all. Um, I mean, you had to pre-qualify to enter it. Uh, I think 1,300 people or thereabouts were accepted as sort of pre-qualified to, to enter the contest. Um, I'd done some work with, I don't know whether the name resonates, but one of the remote viewers um, was called Ingo Swan. In fact, he was one so. of the founders of the remote viewing program. Yeah, I, I'd I'd known Ingo. Um, uh, we I'd met him several times before he died, and uh, I latterly came to um, be commissioned by his family to write a biography of him. Well, wow. the biography didn't happen, but I ended up actually working with his archive, finding a couple of undiscovered Ingo manuscripts, which the family then published, but I helped to edit and put all of that together. And I was able to put that into my submission for the Bix essay as probably the only sort of qualification I had to enter this, apart from the fact I'd done some research, to enter this, this competition. And uh, as I say, to my enormous surprise, I found myself amongst the 29 winners and uh, ended up, getting presented with a, a check at Bigelow's aerospace facility in North Las Vegas in December last year. Amazing. What was it like being inside that building? Everyone always says, oh, I'd love to see inside. But I mean, I suppose it was a, a great feeling, but nothing. Well, it, well it, it was it was interesting because, I mean, on, on, on one level, it's like, you know, bear in mind, I've probably toured a, oh no, not a million aerospace facilities. <laughs> I've been in hundreds, if not thousands, of aerospace factories over the course of my twenty-year career, and oh, one goodness. looks very much like another. So, on the one hand, I walk into this facility and go, "Oh, this looks really familiar." You know, um, there's a habitable space module in there. There's, you know, there's. It is a it is a regular modern aerospace facility. But on the other hand, you're pinching yourself and thinking, I know people who would give their eye teeth to get into this place. Yeah. Um, and so from that point of view, it was fascinating and uh, uh, a, a very enjoyable evening, you know, particularly rubbing shoulders with some of these other you know, very worthy winners who had PhDs and MDs and I, I, I am suffering from imposter syndrome. I'm literally thinking, what am I doing here? But it was a great privilege to have won. It's opened up some other doors. And it also, you know, gave me some insights into the world of ufology as well, actually, because, um, you know, I haven't, I hadn't pre-2017, as I said, and the New York Times piece, I'd not spent a whole lot of time looking at UFOs. And I know that sounds strange because a lot of people equate the Hunt for Zero Point with a UFO book. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd probably argue that toss and I'd say, to me, it's not. It, it, it's, it's the story of my hunt for exotic terrestrial technology. Um, but on, you know, by some definitions, that is a UFO book. Uh, <laughs> but along the way, post-2017, 
when the New York Times came out with that story, I thought, well, actually, you know, um, this does deserve, this phenomenon, this subject really does deserve to be looked at. And so, you know, and I'd done some reading before that of, you know, books by Jacques Vallée and others. I'm a great admirer of, of Vallée's work. I think he did some yeah. pioneering stuff. Um, and I thought, you know what? I mean, I come from a nuts and bolts background. That's that's my that's my was my beat. Sure. And I know so many people who've gone down the nuts and bolts road to try and decipher the UFO enigma. I thought, you know what? I'm I'm actually I'm sort of I'm more in the valet camp. I think there is a connection with consciousness. I don't know what it is, but let's start to have a look at it. So you know, in opening up the pure consciousness research that I'd been doing, it also gave me a sort of sideline, um, uh, you know, a, a sort of seat in the in 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 the sidelines of the theatre on the on the sort of the UFO phenomenon as well, and that's been interesting because it's perhaps given me some insights into that world that I wouldn't otherwise have had. Yeah, and you recently became a, a, research, a research director for Forbix. So, what does that entail exactly? Any specific duties? Uh, well, no. Uh, I mean, it's early days at the moment. To be honest, the the, the formation of Bix. Um, I mean, Robert Bigelow formed Bix uh, just prior to the contest. Uh, so that was in when it, whenever we said it was uh, last year. Um. And then after that, he wanted to use the essay as a platform for further research into into consciousness, but particularly into the survival um, aspect, the survival of survival or continuity of consciousness after death. Um, so uh, I I was asked, um, I guess it was a couple of months ago, whether I would like to be a, uh, a research director of the organization along with several other BIX essay, essay winners. And um, I said, yeah, I would, I, I would like to be. Um, it's, this research is conducted in a spirit of openness. It is um, uh, tasked or, or its mission is to, you know, try to plumb the depths of what possibly to us is the greatest mystery. You know, what happens to us when we die? And, to be a part of that, uh, it's 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 uh, no, it's nothing like a full time job at all. It's a very part time um, job. Uh, is um, for me very uh, rewarding, insightful, and a privilege. So I'm 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 enjoying. So far, I'm enjoying the work, but we haven't got very far into it yet. Well, I mean, I suppose I should say congratulations on the essay and on the new role. But I really look forward to seeing what does come from this from these early days. Uh, hopefully, you know, it'll be something that the public will be, you know, able to 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 see when it when it's released. So yeah, really exciting stuff. Uh, well, that that concludes my questions. I do have one here, which I, uh, I'll put to you from Elena Campbell. asks thoughts on zero point energy and pyramids. Well. Um, I, I don't, I mean, there are some weird sort of synchronicities in that question. Um, I think I said at the top of the interview that I'd studied Arabic and Islamic studies at university. Uh, I actually have lived part of my life in Egypt. And so I'm sort of used to go and visit the pyramids a lot. I'm very familiar with the Giza site and 
you know, other other um, ancient Egyptian sites. I've never looked into that aspect of, of um, zero point energy or exotic energy. I'm very aware that there are questions about, you know, what the pyramids are and whether they have um, uh, sort of, you know, hidden facets to them, to them, which bestow sort of, you know, exotic properties on uh, 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 um, objects. Um, but I don't know anything about it. So I, I'm going to have to duck that one. So thank you for the question. But I wish I knew more about it. Uh, I don't. Uh, I do know that uh, my uh, uh, friend Jay Anderson has just been uh, to Egypt and has looked, uh, he of Project Unity, um, and has looked uh, with uh, some other people I know at some of the more exotic aspects of the pyramids and Egyptology. And uh, I think he'd be a much better person to us than me. Fantastic. Thank you. Anyway, and um, we got one last question here. Who is conducting the best current research on life after death? Well, you know, obviously, I'd love to be able to report that Bix is, but as I said, uh, that's, you know, the bigger Bigelow Institute, but it's very early days for the Bigelow Institute. So they're, they're just getting up and running on that very question. Um, there are a great many. Um, no, there aren't a great many. There are a number of um, academic institutions which uh, and institutes that do look at that subject. Um, the um, uh, the SPR um, in the UK, so the Society of Psychic Research, is right. very you know it's, it's a very old society. It's been doing that very question, um, looking into uh, post um, death uh, consciousness research for 150 years. You know that's one of the leading institutions there are universities um the university of virginia for example is tasked with um consciousness research uh, on that question and on reincarnation and the continuity of uh consciousness before and after death so you know there there are it, it's a growing field but it's it's a relatively recent field in terms of its acceptability by mainstream academia Right. Excellent. Well, before we go, I'm just going to give a quick shout out. Jimmy the Earthling, uh, thank you so much for the donation and the, the lovely comment. Great discussion. Uh, it's been my pleasure and it's been absolutely wonderful. Well, uh, Nick, thank you so much. That was fascinating. I knew it would be. Um, so, yeah, thank you ever so much. Cheers, Vinny. Good to see you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you to everybody that was in the comments, uh, in the live chat, for keeping it nice and mature and clean. I always appreciate that. I will be back next week. You can go over to my Instagram or my Twitter to, to see who I've got coming up next. But for now, everyone, hey, enjoy the rest of your day wherever you are, uh, and we'll see you soon. Take care. You're listening to the Anomalous Podcast Network. Multiple voices, one phenomenon.